children I'd like to talk about healing. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a very central symbol which is, is used as a kind of teaching vehicle. And it's called the Wheel of Life. And the Wheel of Life portrays pretty well all of the dimensions that, of our experience that we go through in our lives, from our birth to our death. The Wheel of Life describes the, the path in which suffering is caused and created, and the Wheel of Life also more powerfully portrays the way out of suffering. One of the images that is used in the Wheel of Life is a picture of a house with open windows. And that picture of a house with open windows is meant to symbolize feeling, our capacity to feel, a capacity that we carry with us throughout our lives, and a capacity that we share with all life. As long as we live, we feel. The capacity to feel means that we are intrinsically open to experiences both of joy and experiences of pain. And one of the most fundamental facets or aspects of all existence, of all life, is that we will all encounter experiences and moments of pain in our life. There is no one who is exempt, no one who is invincible. There is no one no living being who is able totally through strategies or through armor or through protecting themselves able to transcend the actuality of pain. It is part of our lives. Our bodies have their own particular encounters with pain sometimes in the form of aging, sometimes in the form of illness, and at times in dying. Our minds also have their own world, their own possibilities of pain. When we become entangled in knots of suffering, we will all encounter in our lives experiences where there is loss, where there is separation, where there is failure, times perhaps when we are rejected or times when we are hurt. There's the pain we come across in our lives when we feel that we are deprived of the things or the people or the experiences that we want. And there's also the pain that comes to us in our lives when we receive the things that we don't want. When we explore and look at the world around us, we see that this capacity to experience pain, to be hurt, is a thread that runs through all of existence, from the smallest creature to the most powerful person. In also looking at pain, we do see that no pain exists in isolation. No pain exists as a self-contained, separate experience. If you take the experience
sense of perhaps being hurt by someone being angry with us. And it happens in our lives that perhaps we are subjected to the words or the actions of others where there is a, a background of anger or an intention of anger. And yet to look at that anger, it is so easy to be offended or, or, or to feel insulted. And yet if we really explore anger, which all of us will encounter and do encounter in our lives, and to really look at the nature of anger, we look at it in ourselves, we look at it in others. And we would even, could even begin to ask, you know, where is the beginning of anger? Where does it begin? Our lives and our experience are interwoven with the lives and stories of countless other people. The feelings that we experience, the emotions that we experience, the ways in which we relate to the world are interwoven with the lives and stories of countless other people in our world. The people who have hurt us, the people who have brought us joy, the people who've supported us, the people who've challenged us, the people in our past and in their past who may have hurt them and who may have continued a tradition of hurt or anger. We inherit in many ways the stories and the lives and the responses of countless generations before us. We may live our own lives or feel within our own experience of life the pain of fear. Can we be, see the beginning of fear? Can we spot the moment when fear actually started in our own story? Sometimes we begin to explore these feelings we have the emotions we have, the experiences we go through. And we can see that they begin sometimes in times before we were even born. That there is transmitted these kind of inheritances through generations of being. There is no experience of pain that exists in isolation. Hatred and greed and fear are passed on in our culture, in our world, from one generation to another. This is helpful for us to see. It is helpful for us to see the way in which our stories are so interwoven, the way in which our feelings are so interwoven with others, the way in which our responses are often so interwoven with others. Sometimes it helps us to take away the blame. Sometimes it helps us to take away the exaggerated sense of personal responsibility. Sometimes it allows us to approach pain as pain rather than as my fault or my imperfection or my failure. Pain is also the nature of separation on different levels. When we are separated, things or people we love, when we are separated from what we want or feel that we need, then the nature of that separation is pain. When we are separated from ourselves, that is deeply painful. When we feel as if we live our lives, you know, somehow through the eyes or through the 
perceptions of somebody else's story, somebody else's belief system. When we feel separated from that which is most true and genuine within ourselves, we somehow feel homeless or cast adrift or just lost in an inherited patterns of reactivity. The nature of that separation is deeply painful. Now some of the pain that we encounter in our lives is part of the package of being human. It's part of the human story. If we love, it means that we will be exposed to loss. If we care for someone, it means that we are exposed to the possibility of disappointment. If we are intimate with someone, then we are exposed to the possibility of separation. And wisdom as a human being doesn't mean that we look at those possibilities and then withdraw from love, withdraw from care, withdraw from intimacy. But it does mean that we need to be extraordinarily awake in our engagements and relationships and interactions, that we need to be so close to the nature of life. Because if we are not close to the nature of life, we often feel devastated by loss, by disappointment, by separation. Wisdom means actually being able to embrace the nature of life which is change, with a sense of grace and understanding and balance. Some pain that we experience comes with being alive and being able to feel. And there is also a level of pain that we experience that is actually not intrinsic to being alive and being human or being a woman. There is pain that we experience that is born of misperception. There are layers of pain that we experience that are born of confusion, sometimes born of really not understanding the nature of life, not understanding the nature of of ourselves, sometimes even denying or trying to avoid some of life's most fundamental truths. There is a whole level of pain and suffering that is born of denying the understanding that all things do change, that there is no certainty in anything that can be held on to. Sometimes there's a level of pain that is born of falsely identifying with our inner descriptions and judgments and conclusions as being the truth of who we are. There's a level of pain that is born of identifying with opinions and conclusions and beliefs about others as being the truth of who they are. Some pain is born very much of the confusion of not understanding that the very nature of wanting or avoidance is in itself suffering, rather than, as we sometimes want to believe, as a pathway to the end of suffering. You know, sometimes we, we want to see wanting or we want to see craving or avoidance as a pathway to bring about the end of suffering rather than actually seeing that that very restlessness and attempt to remove ourselves from what is actually happening in this moment is in itself suffering. Where there is pain on whatever level it occurs in, there is a call for and a need for healing to find a place of healing and a way of healing within ourselves. 
There is a need for healing through forgiveness and compassion and most deeply a need for healing through wisdom. And I think sometimes people have the mistaken impression that, that Buddhist teaching is, is in some way kind of obsessed with, with suffering. You know, sometimes people even say, well, didn't the Buddha say that life is suffering? The Buddha didn't actually say that life is suffering. The Buddha once did say that there is suffering within life. But the whole of the teaching that has really evolved within Buddhist teaching is a teaching that is in the service of the end of suffering. I mean, this practice and everything that is taught within this tradition is in truth in the service of healing. The Buddha was once asked, when we meet the difficult in our lives, when we meet the painful in our lives, when we meet suffering in our lives, how, how should we or how can we respond? And the Buddha answered that there are different ways of responding to the difficult, to the painful, to suffering. That some of the ways that we respond lead to the end of suffering, to happiness, to joy, to freedom, and that some of the ways in which we can respond actually lead to the perpetuation of suffering. I think for, you know, I mean, the last, certainly the 2,500 years of Buddhist teaching is a record of human beings trying to figure out how to respond wisely to suffering, how to find happiness. And it's you know, probably true that sometimes we're fairly slow learners. We're going to get there eventually. The Buddha spoke about one way of responding to diffic- the difficult or to p- the painful or to suffering. He said one way of responding is to, to travel the pathway of blame, which is essentially the pathway of anger. And we live in a very blaming culture. You know, I think increasingly so, we live in a blaming culture where there's a tremendous interest in finding out whose fault it is or who we can hold responsible for whatever occurs in our lives. I could almost imagine a time when one yogi might sue another yogi for disturbing them in the meditation room and obstructing their happiness. We live in a culture, I think, of blame. But in some ways, it is understandable, because the pathway of blame is very much the pathway of anger. And sometimes anger feels, when we are deprived of other possibilities, anger sometimes seems maybe the only way available to us that we can actually begin to express what we feel. When we are hurt in our lives, when we are wounded in our lives, and not just speaking about, you know, superficially being hurt or insulted by another, but when we are deeply hurt, on on an essential level, our, our whole sense of who we are, our whole inner sense of who we are can be deeply wounded. When we are hurt deeply, it often leads to feelings of being inadequate or worthless. 
inclinations towards self-judgment, feelings of powerlessness, when we are deprived through being hurt of a sense of respect or care or integrity in our lives. These deep feelings of heart that do happen, they also can become very deeply held belief systems about ourselves, belief systems that are built upon a foundation of pain, a foundation of rejection or abuse or judgment or denial. And sometimes these belief systems that begin to be formed in our lives can and often are adopted as being our vision of ourselves, our vision of who we are, which in turn very clearly shapes and molds our vision of the world and of other people. And you can think of many examples of that if we feel very fearful within ourselves. You know, the whole world can feel like an intruder. You know, if we feel very inadequate within ourselves, it seems that everyone else in the entire world is the winner and we are the loser. You know, if we feel very worthless within ourselves, it is easy to have feelings of of jealousy or envy or place people on pedestals around us while belittling ourselves. Now, very often it does happen in our lives that when we awaken, to the damage, the inner damage that is caused by a wounded sense of vision, that we feel filled with anger and feel filled with blame. Now sometimes I think that anger and the awakening that comes through that anger is actually really very useful. Because one of the characteristics of a wounded sense of vision that is built upon feelings of inadequacy or worthlessness or powerlessness is that wounded sense of vision often feels to be very bereft of energy. It often feels very bereft of confidence. Often feels very, very flat, you know, very, very energyless. And so sometimes that the anger that arises is almost like an awakening energy. And if that awakening energy is embraced, with wisdom, with understanding, it can really empower us to bring about change. It can really empower us to investigate, to question, to deepen in understanding, to check out what is true. But that same energy of anger, if it's embraced with confusion, can be deeply disabling. And it becomes either inner blame or it becomes outer blame. And what happens is that blame, in many ways, instead of allowing us to awaken and move, move on in our lives, to deepen in our lives, the blame often ties us to pain and ties us to the past. You know, there's a story that is often used in Buddhist teaching about this guy is wandering around in the forest and he gets shot with an arrow. And people rush to his assistance and want to pull the arrow out. And just as they reach towards him to help him, you know, he puts up his hands and says, no, hold on, you know, just wait a minute. Before you remove this arrow, I want to know what kind of wood it's made from, what direction it was fired from, what kind of bow was used, who shot it, what distance they shot it from. 
And he gave this long list of questions that had to be brought before the arrow could be removed. Sometimes we can get in that same place of so much wanting to analyze and find out who is at fault and who is to blame and why, that we are actually tied to the pain in the present. Now it is true that pain, all pain, does have a cause, even when we may not be able to trace it. Sometimes we can trace the causes of pain. And it often does happen that the causes of pain lie in the events or the actions or the words of another. But it is also, I think, too, that blame becomes a subtle form of wanting and needing and even a subtle form of dependency. We can become very fixated upon blame. You know, whose fault it is. I mean, we can think of a situation of where we've been hurt and where we have a great deal of ill will towards someone in our life. And what is it that keeps that story alive? What is it that keeps that sense of blaming or obsessing alive? Sometimes we want something from that person. Sometimes we want an admission of guilt or we want an apology or we want maybe even them to suffer, you know, because we, we, we feel hurt. We may even want them to suffer in the same way. A woman I once met spoke to me once, told me this story, and she said it was all right to share it, about going through in her life, and she'd been very, very, very much hurt by her father. And when she was a teenager, she left home and decided that she was never, ever going to have anything to do with her father again. And this happened, and after some years, she was informed by her mother that her father had, had died, and she refused, also still, because she felt so much, grief around him to go to his funeral. And then she said, years later, years later, she said, still, she said, I found myself still, you know, thinking of all the things he did wrong, blaming him, wanting him to suffer. And she said, I realized that actually I was keeping this heart alive with this blame. That somehow being so fixated on it, it had become the reference point for my, the whole of my life that has become the history of almost every moment and every relationship and every experience, almost the expectation of pain and the lack of trust. When we are tied to pain, sometimes we can't move on. We can't always be free in our lives. We can't move into the present nor into the future because we are so tied to the past. And sometimes I think it's important to question at what point we are no longer following a path of healing or understanding. And at one point we may actually be following a path of perpetuating suffering. And it's a fine balance to find. You know, if you use the analogy that if, if we were sick in our lives, you know, there is the pain, of course, of being sick, of being unwell. If we don't know what's wrong with us, that's a whole other level of pain altogether. The pain of not knowing what's wrong with us. And many people often say that when they finally get a sort of diagnosis or a label for what's wrong with them, they feel a kind of a sense of relief, you know, that, oh, at least now I know, I know it's this. You know, I can sort of pin it down and, um, you know, I have a description for it and a label for it and I may even know then how to respond wisely to it. 
But then sometimes we get better from that illness. And it would be a strange thing to, to then go through the rest of our lives saying, you know, I, I have this. You know, I'm ill with this. When it is no longer a part of our present reality. Now, I think, that I have a sense that in our culture, you know, as much as we live in a culture of blame, we also do live, I think, in a culture of labels a culture of description. And those labels are often placed inwardly. That we define ourselves in a particular way and sometimes we define ourselves by pain. We define ourselves by what we feel is wrong with us. Sometimes those ways of defining ourselves actually become our prisons. They become our belief system. They can become a conclusion about who we are. Now, a significant part of healing is actually clear comprehension. And this is where the fine balance is. Because in order to move on in our lives, in order to move through that which is difficult, we need to know what we're moving through. You know, it's really important that we can see where there is fear, where there is hatred, where there is anger, where there is resistance, where there is... Uh, uh, hurt created in one way or another, it's important that we know those pieces of ourselves. And that clear comprehension sometimes is what makes our experience accessible to us. You know, that we know it as it is. But clear comprehension is about the present. It's not about then in knowing what is happening within us, then surrounding that with a fixed story, which becomes sometimes the passageway of blame, the passageway of fault. Clear comprehension is about the present. It is about having a fluid and an open connection with what is happening within us right in this very moment. You know, clear comprehension, really knowing what is taking place, is filled with a kind of invitation to learn and to deepen. We see often blame is about the past, about what has gone by, about which we cannot undo and which we cannot erase, where there are few possibilities of change. And sometimes I think when we have labels about ourselves, we need to be very clear about where those labels are a way of coming to clear comprehension, and where those labels are actually a way of tying ourselves to something which has actually gone by, which is kept alive in the present. I think one of the first steps of healing is that capacity to come to the present in a compassionate, in an open way, to actually ground ourselves in this moment and what we are experiencing. One of the first and the primary steps of healing is to let go of the story about what has already gone by. The second path that the Buddha spoke about is a way of responding to pain. It's a path of despair. And again, this is a pathway that can be very familiar to us. The despair in which we ask those questions of why did this happen to me? What have I done to deserve this? What have I done wrong? Why is there so much darkness in my life? That place where we kind of throw up our hands in resignation. And despair or depression, that heaviness of spirit, can be a very powerful prison 
And it is also a very constricting prison, despair. Because it makes us afraid. It makes us afraid of the present. It makes us afraid of the past. And it makes us afraid of the future. Despair is a kind of, I think, a negative surrender. Where, you know, we're very often reluctant to begin anything new in our lives because we already forecast failure. You know, where we almost accept limitation or pain as, as a reality for ourselves. And sometimes in despair, there's very little that we seek for, but there's often a lot of fantasy, often a lot of fantasy, because fantasy is somehow providing the juice that we feel is actually impossible for us, but that we can entertain in this hidden place within ourselves. You know, so there's often a lot of fantasy about, you know, exciting fantasies, dramatic fantasies about all the things that could happen. And yet in the reality of our lives, there is often actually very little movement. Because our capacity to bring about change is not actually believed in. Because we believe instead that somehow well-being and happiness is the territory of other people. One of the primary mantras of despair is, I can't. I can't. You know, I can't do this. I can't change, I can't understand this, I can't access this. The, the mantra about impossibility. We really, I think it is really very important to question that mantra. Because it is always defining what is impossible. It is always defining what if we, we've accepted or adopted as being our, our prison, or our sense of limitation. And it is a, a belief system. That kind of despair, that kind of story about what I cannot do, is given life not by the past, but by the clinging to the past in the present. If, you really, if we really look at what creates continuity between the past and the present, it is this power of holding the power of holding, which creates our belief system. And our belief systems surely do shape our world. Now, it may be true that there are many things we can't do in this life. I mean, there are many things I can't do. I, I can't reverse the laws of gravity in my body. I can't undo the past. I think it's unlikely that I'll set any Olympic records in this lifetime. I can't guarantee the future. But those are the levels, you know, they are levels of reality. There are many things left then in the realm of possibility. There's a whole lot left in the realm of possibility. We carry within ourselves the capacity to be awake, the capacity to be aware. And this is actually the only prerequisite of wisdom and transformation. And it doesn't belong to special people. You know, it doesn't belong to the karmically fertile. It belongs to everybody, the capacity to be awake and aware, which is the capacity for wisdom and transformation. The third path that the Buddha spoke about in relationship to meeting pain and suffering is the path of possibility and the path of wisdom and the path of healing. It is the path of moving inwardly and the path of moving on. 
So I mentioned there is pain that is intrinsic to being human, to being alive, and there is also a level of suffering which is not intrinsic to life. Suffering which is layered. Suffering which is layered upon our experience through misunderstanding. Suffering which we might describe indeed as being optional. And the path of wisdom is dedicated to bringing about the end of that suffering, to turning towards any instance of suffering or difficulty and struggle in our lives, and really looking at how it is caused in this moment and how does it come to an end. I think when we speak about healing, when we speak about healing ourselves and healing our world, I don't personally perceive this as an approach where we take upon a very specific mission, inwardly or outwardly. I don't think it's only an approach of saying, you know, oh, I have anger and that needs healing, or I have a sense of worthlessness and that needs healing. I think that is too agenda-oriented. And I think it is a way in which we can actually become very lost in, in our stories and our belief systems. One area which I think it is so important to cultivate is to really look at what it means to cultivate inwardly and in our world an environment of healing. What does it mean to cultivate a healing space which is not specifically agenda-oriented but which can embrace any instance, any moment of struggle or suffering that actually arises? What does it mean to cultivate an environment of healing within ourselves and around ourselves. It is clear that the ingredients of healing are not despair or blame, that healing doesn't happen through dwelling on what has already gone by, that that is often just a practice of suffering. Conclusions are often a surrender to suffering. But I think there are real ingredients in cultivating that healing space. Some of them we've spoken about here the willingness to extend kindness and generosity of heart, the willingness to turn towards rather than to avoid or turn away from, the willingness to extend unconditional attentiveness, the willingness to restrain ourselves from our familiar pathways of judgment or or condemnation. And there are other ingredients of healing too. One of the very powerful ingredients of healing is vision. It's vision. It's inner vision and it's outer vision. If you look at any path of anyone who's ever traveled a spiritual journey, and this includes ourselves, we carry within us a spark of vision. And no one would ever, ever come to a retreat or practice meditation or undertake any path of exploration in their life if they didn't have that spark of vision. You know, we would never turn up here if we had already concluded, you know, that suffering was our particular inheritance in this life, and that was it. Vision we carry within us. It's sometimes just a whisper. You know that there is some sense of possibility within our transformation, and sometimes it's very clear to us. It is a very, very powerful force, and it's something to cultivate. Sometimes vision is cultivated just by questioning what is true. You know, when we meet our images, when we meet our conclusions, when we meet our descriptions, when we meet our, our, our judgments, 
to be able to bring that simple question, is this true? Is this true? You know, is actually a very immediate manifestation of that spark of vision. Vision has to do with faith. Faith has to do with a sense of possibility. You know, faith in this path is not directed towards someone else or some external entity or some future destination. Faith, mostly in this path, is directed towards our own capacity and our own potential for awakening, for understanding, for deepening, and for freedom. And it is something to cultivate, and it's something actually we cultivate all the time here. You know, when you turn up for a sitting after, you know, in the midst of feeling a lot of struggle or difficulty, you know, what you are manifesting in that moment is faith in yourself, faith in your capacity to be, to be present, to be aware, to understand. You know, when you find yourself questioning in any way the truth of a conclusion or a judgment, we are manifesting faith in ourselves in that moment, faith in a sense of possibility. When we practice, we are manifesting faith in ourselves. But there is something deeper to our being, something deeper within us than the just this passing world of thoughts and ideas and conclusions. Vision and vision faith, that sense of possibility, are very powerful ingredients in the environment of healing. They are things to reflect upon. Reflect upon. They are things to recollect, I think, in moments of struggle and difficulty. Vision is also something that is, is manifested. It's not a kind of vague idea, you know, that says, you know, one day I'll be enlightened, maybe. Um, vision is actually that it's something that is very clearly manifested and embodied on a moment-to-moment level. You know, in those moments in our own practice when we think or when we flounder or we feel very reactive or, you know, we want to just go to sleep, you know, vision is manifested by the questioning and our willingness to be attentive in those moments to actually see what is happening, to explore what is going on, we are actually manifesting vision. And we need to really, if that is a quality we cultivate in our practice. This capacity to spark vision, as well as all of the other qualities we cultivate in, in meditation, are parts of cultivating and creating a healing space or an environment of healing within ourselves. And that healing is not just about the present. There is a very curious phenomenon, I think, that happens in meditation in the way in which we see the, that the past is healed by the ways in which we heal the present. This is very different than many other views in our world, I think, where often there's held the view that, you know, in order to be whole, in order to be happy, in order to be free in the present, that first you must go back to the beginnings, go back to the far distant past, you know, and alter that and heal that somehow so that you actually can come through the present. Meditation actually works in the reverse. The emphasis is placed upon healing this moment. Healing this moment. Now, everything arises in this moment. You know, past and future. Our thoughts, our memories, our wounds from the past, our histories, our images, 
all of the whole array of experiences of pain and joy from the past arise in the present. The healing that happens in relationship to them also happens in the present. Now, how does healing happen in the present? It is interesting to explore that. We can see the ways in which healing doesn't happen in the present. We can see that healing doesn't happen through rejection or through judgment or through denial or through resistance or through shouting at ourselves. It doesn't heal anything at all. But we see that healing does happen in the present in the way in which we are present, in the quality of our presence in this moment, the quality of our presence of spaciousness, of acceptance, of openness, of understanding, of receiving, of allowing things to be, allowing things to be. Somehow all of those qualities allows the radiance of our own awareness to shine upon all of this. And there is healing. There is healing. We also, I think, begin to more and more deeply understand that that healing is really not just about my pain. You know, the pain is not an observer of boundaries. You know that your anger is different than my anger, or your grief is different than my grief. There is anger, there is grief, there is sorrow, there is suffering, inwardly and in all beings. Pain is not an observer of boundaries. It is not an observer of territory. The more that we can bring that loving attentiveness to shine upon those moments of pain, the more do those boundaries between self and other actually begin to dissolve. And we see the importance and the tremendous urgency about actually cultivating this healing space. Not only just as it applies to our own being, but as it applies to all life and to all moments. To bring that quality of presence where we are present with loving kindness, with attentiveness, with compassion, with the willingness to be wholeheartedly present that in that there is a letting go of what has gone by. And there is through that also an evoking, an evoking of a fullness of heart and a depth of wisdom in every moment. It is the kind of healing, the healing space that touches us and it touches everyone around us, just as we are touched by those qualities. if we have a couple of minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.